So great to be here with you this morning. We are doing a baptism today. It's an exciting day. I think some people are going to be getting baptized today. Kind of, I like to think of baptism as a way of going Facebook official with your faith. You know, you've maybe had a relationship with Jesus, but it's been on the covert, on the DL, and baptism is a way to say, you know what, I'm going public with this. I don't want a little sprinkle of Jesus in my life. I don't want a little squirt of Jesus in my life. Man, I want to be fully immersed. I want to be soaking wet with God. God's presence. That's really what baptism communicates. It's saying, you know what, I'm dead to my old life like Jesus died for me and I'm alive to a new life. I'm a new creation in Christ. So if you're here and uh, you've never been baptized, I hope you stick around for the next service. We're just going to do it all together at the end of the next service. We got this, we, we just take this giant tank of water up the stairs. I don't even know how we did it. Amazing. Joining a team like uh, Joining the team like Casey was talking about a moment ago. So that's something that's really exciting for us. But today, I wanted to take a moment as we're in between series and uh, talk about something that I just think is, is so unique, so profound, so world-altering. It changed history about the Christian faith. And it has uh, uh, relevance to each one of us in our daily lives, but it also has relevance just to, you know, the things that people argue about, the things that are filling news headlines every single day, filling up Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds. And that's the concept of significance, okay? Significance. And uh, I'll title my message today, In Significance. Make sure if you're taking notes, you add the space. The space is pretty important. Do communicate it. We're, we're doing a talk, we're a talk in significance. And uh, I think you'll catch my drift in the title in a little while. But significance could be defined, uh, defined as being sufficiently great or important to be worthy of attention, to be noteworthy, to be distinguished. Now, everybody is in a pursuit of significance. Everybody's looking for that. And maybe in our day and age, uh, more than ever, this is what people think will give them a meaningful life. There was a study that was interviewing fifth graders back in 2012, interviewing about their life aspirations. You know, what job do you want to have? What do you want more than anything in life? Do you want to fall in love? Do you want to launch a great career? Do you want to change the world? And, And fifth graders said this, They said that what they wanted predominantly more than anything else was to be famous. (laughs) That that's what kids wanted. They wanted to be famous, whether it's just going viral on YouTube or having the most Instagram followers or making it on some reality TV show or, you know, America's Got Talent, American Idol, whatever it is. These fifth graders, more than wanting to be a part of a community, more than wanting to uh, make a difference in the world, more than wanting to fall in love, more than wanting to have a, a, a powerful career. They just wanted to be famous. Not famous for anything they really contributed, not famous for anything they did, not famous because they cured some disease. They just wanted to be famous. And that really is the paradigm that, that, uh, that we're living in. That's what everybody's pursuing. Everybody wants to feel significant. Everybody wants to feel important. There's been 142 different leaders throughout world history who have had added to their name the great. The great. Whether it's you know, uh, Napoleon the great, or it's Herod the great, or Alexander the great. Think about 42 of them. And, and that's really what everybody wants in some ways. They, nobody aspires to mediocrity. Nobody aspires to living a mediocre life. We settle for it. 
We settle for living mediocre lives. We settle for living lives that are insignificant. Lives that don't make a mark. Lives that don't really matter. Well, Jesus, he takes this approach to greatness and he comes at it head on. And he doesn't say that the issue is our desire for greatness. Because some people would think of it like that. They'd kind of take the ascetic view. You know, you just need to hate yourself, despise yourself, have this low self-esteem, think nothing, think that you're bad, think that you're no good. But that's actually not the biblical message. Because Jesus, he doesn't tell us that our problem is our desire for greatness. He says our problem is our definition of greatness. It's the way you define significance. It's the way you define greatness. It's, that's what's lacking. That's what's deficient. That's kind of what has those fifth graders in our society as a whole and even human history uh, on the grander scale. That's where we go wrong. It's the way in which we define it. Everybody wants to be remembered. Nobody wants to just drift away into obscurity. Everybody wants to do something that matters. But what Napoleon the Great didn't understand, what Alexander the Great didn't grasp, what Herod the Great didn't, didn't uh, go along with, was, was really this concept that greatness isn't defined by the amount of people who serve you. Greatness is defined by the amount of people you serve. Greatness isn't defined by the amount of people who serve you. Greatness is defined by the amount of people you serve. I've heard it put like this before, that if you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. If you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. To lead. And this principle, it, it turned human history on its head. It was so revolutionary when Jesus spoke these words. And it doesn't, it's not just counterintuitive to ancient people, it's counterintuitive to us today. It, it goes against the grain of everything that our human hearts are prone to. So would you look with me in Mark chapter 10, and we'll start out in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Isn't that great? With Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. Well, those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, and I'll just give you a little sidebar right there. We read the Son of Man. People get confused about it. That's actually a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. It's a divine title because the Son of Man ends up being served. The Son of Man ends up being worshipped. The Son of Man is God when you read uh, the context from Daniel. But it says the Son of Man, think about that. He's going to be served by all the nations, but this is what's going to happen to him first. He'll be delivered over to the chief priests. To the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, who have no sense of good timing, come to him and say, Teacher, He said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We want you to do for you. you, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. You will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and at my left, that's not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know those who are regarded as rulers among the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, I thank you that we can come here, we can gather We can hear your word. We can sing out songs. God, I pray that we would be changed by these truths. I pray that we as Christians wouldn't just come and talk about this and be impressed by this, but it'd be impressed upon us, that we'd live differently because of it. I pray that if there's people who are investigating Christianity, skeptics, maybe people who are doubters, who don't believe this stuff, Lord, that that they would at least see us living these truths out and that that would change them. That would cause them to pause. That would cause them to ponder. That caused them to think. And and I pray, Lord, that people would be changed as, as they're immersed into your life today as we baptize people a little bit later on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is a text about leadership. And here's Jesus, he's leading the way. He's going up to Jerusalem, and it says Jesus leading the way. And this is impressive, considering he knows exactly what's happening. All the religious leaders, all the people in power in Jerusalem, they were people who had been plotting his death almost since the very beginning. Okay, they've been having this increasing hatred, this, this growing conspiracy to kill him, and he's walking right into his execution chamber by going up to Jerusalem. The trap is set, and yet he's leading the way. There's two kinds of courage. Okay, there's the kind of courage that's kind of reflexive, like somebody pulls, drops a grenade, and just instinctively you courageously throw yourself down upon it. That's instinctive, that's reflexive. But there's another kind of courage. And that's courage that's not on an impulse, that's not in the moment. That's the kind of courage where you see the danger afar off and you just keep marching right towards it. Where it's long, drawn out, prolonged, just pushing aside the fear, saying, I'm leading the way. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And what does it say? It says that his disciples were astonished. They were astonished at his boldness, that he was marching on like that. But it says that the other followers, that they were afraid. And this kind of shows us something about good leadership, that he pulls them aside and and he, he, he leads from the front. You know, so many people throughout human history haven't led from the front this way, marching towards the danger. So many other leaders have sent others to march out towards the danger for them, haven't they? I mean, most of those guys whose titles are the great 
Weren't so many of them leaders who, who sent others to their death, who gave the orders to the troops on some distant battlefield while they sat back in the safety of their own little tents? But here's Jesus. He's not leading from the back. He's leading from the front. And can't we just think of so many examples of abuses of leadership? I mean, the list goes on, whether it's from the upper echelons of, of human existence down to the lowest, most petty kinds of power. People abuse it. They, they go crazy with it. People go on power trips. They go on power trips. And that's the kind of trip we want to cancel today. We want to cancel the power trip. But all of us, we can think of abusive parents. We can think of violent, neglectful husbands. We can think of cruel teachers, horrible bosses, corrupt cops, partial judges, scheming CEOs, dictators, despots, tyrants. We can all think of people who've used their significance maybe to curry sexual favors, use their celebrity to curry sexual favors, or maybe use their political significance to, to kind of give million-dollar speeches on Wall Street. And, 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 and what, what, either side of the issue that it is, we all see it. And what's the problem? We see an abuse of power. We see people using their leadership, using their authority, using their significance, their influence, what? For themselves. And that's what human history is riddled with. We see it everywhere. This is a passage on leadership. And you may not think of yourself as a leader. You may look at yourself and go, I'm not really a leader. I'm not, I don't have any much influence. I'm not significant. I have no desire to be a politician. I, I don't even, I'm not even a boss. I'm not even a manager. You know, or maybe you are. Maybe you are. Maybe you aren't. But here's the deal. Every single one of us is leading a life. What kind of life are you leading? Because what our individualistic society oftentimes doesn't lead us to think about, cause us to think about, is the fact that this. What you do doesn't just affect you. Every one of us is leading a life. And the same heart, the same character that's within a janitor will still be within that heart if one day that janitor becomes a general still going to be the same sort of person. And, and that's the truth about you. You may feel like, oh, I wish I was in charge. I wish I was in authority. I wish I was the one giving the orders. But the way that you're leading your life now, whether it's for sacrifice, for service, or it's for self-centeredness, that same character, those same qualities that are possessing you, that are guiding your life, will be guiding your life if one day you took a position of authority, if one day you had the power. So what I'm asking you to consider today is what kind of life are you leading? Well, Jesus talks about true leadership. And the first thing we see in this passage is that true leadership takes empathy. True leadership takes empathy. It's really easy to be oblivious to how people are feeling, isn't it? It's, it's really easy to only really be aware of your own feelings, to be aware of, of what, what the decisions you're making, how they make you feel, how they affect you. But what does Jesus notice in this text? He notices that his decision to march towards Jerusalem had an effect on his followers. And as he's leading from the front, he doesn't forget those who are lagging behind. What does he do when they're afraid, when they're astonished? He pulls them aside, and for the third time, he forewarns them, I'm going to die, 
I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be betrayed. This shouldn't be a shock to you. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. But guess what? Three days later, I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise again. See, a good leader, he prepares his people. And, and, and it's a decision to be proactive, not just reactive. To go out ahead, to, to recognize how people are feeling and make a decision to be proactive, to address how others are feeling. So true leadership takes empathy. But don't you just love the timing of James and John? It's kind of like somebody comes up to you and is like, yes, I have a terminal disease. I have very little time left to live. And then your reaction is like, hmm, when you're dead, can I have all your stuff? <laughs> that's basically the timing of James and John. He's like, yeah, I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be betrayed. People are going to spit on me. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be killed. And they're like, hey, uh, we want you to do whatever we want. It's like, who are these guys? <laughs> the only sad part is that we can relate to it so much, can't we? We can relate to it. It's such a contrast, Jesus, uh, Jesus' life being poured out in, in the way that these guys, who are his closest followers, who have been with him for three and a half years, the, the, the issue that they're having. Matthew tells us they actually had their mom do this. They kind of put their mom up to it. And I think she was one of those she-bear moms. You know, the mom's like, I, there's only the very best for my boys. There's only going to be the very best. You know, coming in and just coming to chewing out the teachers. You cannot give my son a D minus. That will not be tolerated. That will not be allowed. It's like, he didn't do any of his work. He should have gotten an F. It's like, no, that my, he's, the, he's, a, he's a precious little snowflake. He's a star in my family. He's the apple on my eye. You know, it's that kind of mom that she comes and makes this request. Now, this is the fourth time, if you study Mark's gospel uh, start to finish, this is the fourth time within two chapters Jesus has talked about humility. This is the fourth time. Wonder what else this tells me about true leadership, the kind of leadership that we should all try to exemplify in our lives as we grow together, is that true leadership's patient. The true leadership's patient, it's persistent. This is the third time he's told them about his death. It's the fourth time within two chapters that he's told them about humility and that real greatness isn't exalting yourself and imposing your will on everybody else, but that it's, it's, it's humility, it's dependence upon God. Um, he's patient with them. Now, I want you to know Jesus is just as patient with you. You might be here today and, and you may see the self-centeredness that's in your own heart. You may see the way you treat people at your workplace. You may have guilt about the way that you've reacted to people in your family, the way maybe you've even been selfish to people on the team here at the church. Maybe there's already issues in your action groups. I want you to know Jesus is going to be just as patient with you as he was with James and John. He's going to be just as patient with you. You know, we should be as patient with one another, shouldn't we? We should be just as patient with one another. But it takes time for him to get the message. And, and I think this also should let us know that we shouldn't be surprised by how sometimes devastatingly wrong church history has gone, right? If James and John had been with him three and a half years and human nature was so corrupt that they were still having problems at this point, we, should we really be surprised that there's sometimes been abuses in leadership uh, within the church? It shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be taken off guard. Why? Not because Jesus is wrong, not because God's bad, but because human nature really is that dark. And God's that patient. 
That God's that patient. So what we see in church history shouldn't surprise us if his own followers were still taking a long time to get the memo. Next thought, though, is that true leadership isn't arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression arbitrary power. And that means having unlimited power, uncontrolled, unrestricted, and unearned, unwarranted, undeserved power. The, the power, you shouldn't be an authority, you just have it. You have, you have carte blanche, just whatever you want. And uh, it's this attitude that, that we kind of find in all of us, don't we? I mean, if you're a parent, you sure know this, that it's like, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> Do as I say, not as I do. We all like the idea of giving orders, but we don't like the idea of following orders. Nobody wants to follow orders because we have this just thirst for power, this thirst for autonomy, and and that's what's within their hearts. It's what you see in verses 38 to 40, you know, and and, and he lets them know, guess what? It's not arbitrary power. If you really want to be great within the kingdom of God, you have to live a life that is qualitatively great. And if you want to be great within the kingdom of God, you've got to live a life that's qualitatively great. That's what he's getting at with the whole baptism and suffering thing. Baptism and suffering, here, here he's using it metaphorically, not to talk about the wrath of God, which he's going to be the only one who faces that, but that James and John are going to suffer. That James and John are going to serve. That they're going to lay down their lives. They are going to be baptized with the, the baptism that he's going to go for. You know, James is going to have his head cut off as one of the first Christian martyrs. Uh, John's going to be persecuted, left in exile towards the end of his life. They are going to suffer for the good of others. They are going to suffer for the cause of the gospel. But I love how, how they're like, yeah, we could do it. We'll totally drink whatever. Yeah, give us the drink. Serve it up right now, Jesus. We'll take it. He's like... I think you need to read the fine print on this job application. You want to be great, you you should kind of look at the fine print. You should look at the implications. I don't think you know what you're asking. I don't think you know what you're signing up for. But you know, he doesn't tell them to abandon their desire for greatness. We sometimes think ambition is all bad and ambition is all wrong. But you know, he he doesn't stifle their desire for greatness because the problem wasn't the desire for greatness. It was the definition of greatness. So he doesn't tell them, oh, quit desiring to be great. Quit desiring to be powerful. Quit quit desiring to live a significant life. He just changes their definition. Now, this is where we got to be really clear. See, there can be no crown without a cross. An admission into the kingdom of God comes not by works, right? We talk about it constantly. Salvation is a gift you receive, not something you achieve admission into heaven, admission into the kingdom comes just by faith. But position in the kingdom comes by faithfulness. Admission into the kingdom comes by faith, but position in the kingdom comes by faithfulness. That if you want to be great, you got to do something great. If you want to be great, if you, if, if you want people to acknowledge you, if you want prominence and, and significance, and not just for selfish gain, you've got, you got to actually live a life that's glorious if you want glory. If you're going to share in his glory, you've got to share in his agony. If, if you want uh, to be a champion in heaven, you've got to do something great for others and for the glory of God on earth. If you want to be a citizen in heaven, you just trust in Jesus. To be a citizen in heaven, you just trust in Jesus just, we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. But if we want to be champions in heaven, if we really want to live lives that look like his, we got to suffer, we got to serve, we got to do something that's significant, do something 
that's great. And he changes the definition of what that looks like. But you know, after this whole thing goes down, how do the other disciples react? They freak out. They're like, what the heck, man? You guys trying to cut in front of us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. Could we get you some cucumber water, your highness? Could we perhaps, you know, bring you a little bubbly? Could, you know, we're, we're going to bow down to you. We've got to pull up the limousine for these guys. As they come back and, and, and the, the disciples start breaking out in this argument. You know, behind every argument that you have with your spouse, behind every argument that you have with your friends, with your parents, with, uh, with people at the church, with, you know, anybody you know, any, any bit of conflict, any bit of strife that goes down, it's caused by our desire for our rights and for our wants. But if we want to put an end to conflict, if we want to put an end to the animosity, we've got to recognize that, that, it, that it's asserting your will, demanding your rights, wanting recognition. That's what causes these conflicts. But that, but that when Jesus' purpose becomes your purpose, that becomes the end of conflict. When you say, I'm not going to assert my will, I'm not going to demand my rights, I'm going to lay down my rights, that's how it will end our conflicts. And we, we just started this whole thing about action groups and all this stuff about being devoted to one another. If you're a guest here, we talk a lot about how this isn't just an event you attend, it's a community that you're a part of. But our commitment to one another needs to be deeper than our disappointments in one another. Our commitment to one another needs to be deeper than our disappointments in one another. We're going to disappoint each other. I'm going to disappoint you like every time. I'll probably disappoint you a lot. But, you know, if we lay down our rights and we quit asserting our will and quit demanding what we want out of each other, we're going to be able to stay together. So true leadership isn't arbitrary. You have to actually do something great. If you want to be a leader, you need to live a life worth following. If you want to be a leader, you need to lead a life worth following. That's essentially what Jesus is saying, and it makes perfect sense. That admission into the kingdom is just by faith, but that position in the kingdom comes through, through faith, putting you to work, doing something, faithfulness. All right, next thought is that true leadership is costly. True leadership is costly. Let's just reread through these verses. He says, This is how he responds to this giant conflict that breaks out amongst them. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers among the Gentiles, that's the Romans mainly at this point, he says they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so among you. And in the Greek, this is like really emphatic. This is intense. He's probably yelling. He's like, not so among you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. This flips the world upside down. This is so different than anything that exists even today in most people's mentalities and most people's mindsets. And we see the headlines and we we watch the debates and we see everything. But back then it was even crazier. There was a Roman emperor named Galba, and it was hilarious. His inauguration speech made me laugh so hard. Okay, Emperor Galba, on his inauguration day, finding out he was going to be the emperor of of the empire that ruled the known world, Emperor Galba said this. He said, now that I'm emperor, I can do anything I want to anyone I want. That was what he said. Now that I'm emperor, I can do anything I want to anyone I want. It's hilarious, and and it's actually heartbreaking when you think about the atrocities 
that were committed in that empire. You know, people have a lot of horrible bosses, though, today. I read this article in the Washingtonian about people who remind me so much of Emperor Galba. You know, one out of three people who quit their jobs, according to the Washingtonian, say they quit their jobs because they have a horrible boss. And there were some horror stories that remind me so much of Emperor Galba. One guy talked about the job that he left because his boss would walk around with a switchblade and a bat, and that he had people that he'd fired, pictures of them pinned up in his office. I read another story about a guy who, uh, if somebody showed up late to a meeting, he would make them stand on their chair for the entire meeting. It's like the entire meeting, they'd have to stand at corporal punishment. This is so wonderful. Uh, I, the, the, the saddest one was I read one uh, about a boss who uh, his, his father died. The, the man's father died, the employee. And so he went to his boss, had some time off for the funeral. And he said, he's dead. What does it matter to him? We need you here. How was his reaction? Horrible bosses, right? Horrible bosses. And, uh, and that's, that's the way authority a lot of times goes. And we can all think of leaders who've exercised their authority like that. The J.B. Phillips translation calls them so-called rulers. You know, the so-called leaders among the Gentiles, they lord it over them. It actually can be not only, you know, just being uh, coercive and mean and domineering and a bully, but it can also have to do with the idea of just using your leadership to your own advantage. Now let's go back to that thought of how we're leading our lives, right? Maybe you're not a leader. Maybe you're not a boss. Maybe you're not a manager. Maybe you're not even a husband or maybe you're not even a mom. Maybe you're not even a boss of anybody, but you're just leading a life. Do you lead your life to your own advantage? Is the main pursuit of your life? Well, that means that if you were in a position of authority, you would lord it over people. You would rule to your own advantage. That's what he's saying. Ruling to your own advantage. Um, And we see this so much, people making everybody else aware of the hierarchy, the pecking order, putting people in their place, kind of making everybody step back behind the line on the bus, like no toes over the yellow line. <laughs> we know exactly what this is like, the exercise of authority. But Jesus, he's going to flip this on his head. He says, if you really want to be great, don't use your authority to abuse people. Use your authority to serve people. That that's what real authority looks like. And this is not just common wisdom. Like, it sounds like that would be obvious. But Plato, everybody reads Plato at college. He's, he's this brilliant guy rediscovering his writings, brought forth the enlightenment. This is what Plato said. He said, ruling and not serving is proper to a man. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? In that world, humility was a sign of weakness. And it wasn't any better, really, among the corrupt Judaism that had perverted the Old Testament, the the Pharisees who were going to kill Jesus. Their uh, rabbinical writings said that the only reason to serve someone is to curry favor favor with them or to earn merits with God. That the only reason to serve someone is either to look good for people or to look good for God, either to impress people or to prove yourself to God. But here's the deal. If you just serve God so that you can look good for people— you're not serving God, you're serving yourself. If you just serve God to get rid of your guilt, you're not serving God, you're just serving yourself. If you just serve people to look good for people, you're not even serving people, you're still serving yourself. 
That's how deep the selfishness is, is inside of us. I've told you so many times. The Bible, people just think of, 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 uh, of good guys and bad guys. You know, the villains on the cartoons and the, the, and the other people on the cartoons. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. Sin is something so much deeper than that. There's two ways to sin. There's the obvious way, do bad things. But then there's the devious way, do good things for the wrong reasons. And that's how the Pharisees, the only way they served was, was with these, these self-interested warped motives. But Jesus, he turns it all over. You know, Simon Sinek has written some of the most influential books that they're just sweeping, you know, bestsellers, staying on the New York Times bestsellers list forever. He wrote a book called Start With Why. It was one of the most viewed TED Talks that's ever been produced. But he uh, had a conversation with a lieutenant general of the Marine Corps that led him to write his second book. And he, uh, you know, he's disgusted with all the corporate, uh, the backdoor deals and, and people, you know, burning their employees and these CEOs making um, just extortionary amounts of money. And so he has this conversation with Lieutenant General of the Marine Corps. And he goes to him and he says, you know, the Marines are known to be the greatest fighting force in the known world. That the Marines are, are known for having the greatest solidarity, this semper fi, that they're disciplined, that they're organized, that they're devoted to one another. How does that happen, Lieutenant General? How does that happen? The guy's name is George Flynn. And George Flynn answered so quickly. He said, didn't even skip a beat. He said, that's easy. Officers eat last. And Simon Sinek went, officers eat last? He's like, yeah, officers eat last. And, and he's like, if you see a Navy ship come to port, the first one off the ship is the highest ranking general. He's the first one to go on vacation. But if you watch a Marine Corps ship come to port, the recruits go off, then the privates go off, all the way down, and the last person off is the one with the highest authority. He's the last one to go on vacation. Now, I had a friend who was in the Marine Corps, and I was blown away by this as I read this book that Simon Sinek wrote called, guess what, I wonder, this kind of reminds me, I wonder if Simon Sinek came up with this. Maybe Jesus came up with this first. I don't don't know. He called this book, Leaders Eat Last. Leaders Eat Last. I was talking with a guy in the Marine Corps, and uh, I was talking with this dude in the Marine Corps. I said, is this true? Does this actually happen? He's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, when I was in the Marines, there would be four-star generals with their tassels on and their badges on serving the food much of the time. Serving the food. Want to know what the result of that kind of leadership it is? It's solidarity. It's semper fi. It's no man left behind. Because you'll follow that kind of leadership. And that doesn't mean that the president should mop floors all day, okay? Because he would be a really dumb president if he, all he did was mop floors. It doesn't mean that you don't delegate. It doesn't mean that you don't empower people. It doesn't mean that you don't give orders. But it shows the heart, the motivation, the reason why you give those orders. Why don't you take a look at this text, all right? Philippians 2. Paul's writing to a church that has this tendency to be divided, It has this tendency for people to be selfish, to have self-interest motivating the things that they're doing. But he he quotes this, and this is amazing. If you're a skeptic here, or maybe you're just a Christian who has doubts, this is fascinating. Maybe you've heard that the deity of Christ was something that kind of grew up as the myths of the New Testament got ever expanded on, and eventually they started worshiping Jesus. Well, scholars actually say it's unanimously accepted that Philippians was written by Paul, that it was written about 15 years after Christ, and that when he writes this, he's quoting a song that had been sung in the church, okay? These weren't myths that grew up. They believed in the deity of Christ from the very beginning. 
from the moment the church existed, they believed in the deity of Christ. This was a creed. This was a song that they sang. But Paul writes this to a church that is kind of being torn apart a little bit by self-interest. He says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave in being made into human likeness and found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We can become numb to the cross because we talk about it so often. But the cross was a death that was only reserved for slaves. It was only reserved for pirates. Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. We believe a message that says that the one who has all significance, the one who has all authority, the one who created the universe, the singularity that put the Big Bang in, in, into existence, the one who spoke the world to be, who has all authority, that he laid down his significance, that he laid down his rights, and that he came and he served his enemies. Now, this is what the Bible has in mind, because people get torqued when they, when they hear about authority, and they don't like the idea of anybody being an authority in our day and age. And, but this, this is the kind of authority that the Bible has in mind when it says that husbands are head of the wife, What that the, the husband should lay down his life for his wife. This servant leadership. I got to lead a guy to Christ who, uh, who had kind of grown up in the hood. He'd grown up as, as a gangbanger. He'd grown up, you know, just, just in this crazy world. And he couldn't understand the cross. He's like, he was like, Jesus is a punk, man. Like, why would Jesus let everybody spin on him like that? Like, like, like would Jesus, why, why do you get played like that? Why did Jesus do that? But at the same time, I talked to this guy, and he told me, you know, his, his mentality of greatness, his idea of significance, of being a boss, of, be, of being, you know, a, a BA, basically, was that you don't take nothing from no one. You don't take nothing from no one. But at the same time, he told me about the pain in his heart because his dad, who taught him that, to take nothing from no one, was the same dad who bailed on him, was the same dad who took off. Let me ask you a question. What's, what's true greatness? It's taking nothing from no one or being great enough to take care of everyone. What's true greatness? You're so strong that you don't take nothing from nobody or you're so strong that you take care of everybody. You see, great men don't sit atop the backs of weaker people. Great men carry weaker people on their backs. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who does the most good for the most people. Greatness is not measured by the amount of people who serve you. Greatness is measured by the amount of people that you serve. A true leader's job isn't to crack the whip A true leader's job is to have your back. True authority isn't about power. It's about responsibility. It's not exploitative. It's exhortative. It doesn't beat people down. It builds people back up. That's greatness. And you will not learn that from nature where the strong eat the weak. You won't learn that from other faiths. You won't learn that from other religions. You won't learn that from human nature. You learn that from Jesus, 
who came and had all power and all authority, and he laid down his life for his enemies. What kind of life are you leading? What kind of life are you living? Do you lead to your own advantage? Well, then you can't complain when everybody else does in the world. You can't complain when leaders do. Do you lead to your own advantage? You may have no authority right now, and you may want authority, but like somebody should put me in charge. I ought to be in charge. But if you have that heart thing, I ought to be in charge. I ought to run the place. You probably shouldn't be in charge if that's the attitude. You know, but but what the gospel shows is something so different. And I want to tell you something. As the pastor of this church, I want to tell you this. I got a lot of James and John in my heart. I got so much James and John in my heart. I don't know if anybody else can agree with that. But what if we grew together? What if we made up our minds and we're going to say, we're going to grow together. We're going to live differently. We're going to think differently. What if we were a movement of people with this mindset? How refreshing would that be? How, how much unity and solidarity would that be? How effective could we be? How could we change this city, change this, this state? How could we change our communities? How could we change people's lives if we were a movement of people with this mindset? Now, as we shut this thing down, I just want to close with one final thought. We'll have the band come on back up. But there, there was a, a CEO in Seattle... I know that there's a little rivalry with Seattle, no hard feelings up there. Kind of sold out to the man, Seattle. It's just, it's just not, not as cool as us in Portland. We're keeping it weird down here. No, just kidding. But there's a CEO up in Seattle named Daniel Price. And he started a company uh, called Gravity Payment Processing. And the company was successful. But he noticed that morale was kind of lacking on his team. And he heard conversations happening about how the rent was rising in Seattle. People couldn't afford anywhere to live. And so he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he thought about it, and he was the CEO of this company. And he came, and he had a staff meeting where he announced that he himself, who made $1 million a year at this point, was going to take a salary taking $70,000 a year so that he could pay everybody else up till $70,000 a year. He said he was going to take a $930,000 pay cut to ease the pressure off everyone else. That's what he did. Can I ask you a question? Would it be hard to work for that guy? When that guy asked you anything, would you have any doubt that he cared about you, that he believed in you, that he believed in the thing that you guys were doing together? No. No. You would show up to work like, I will do anything that man says. I will go anywhere he goes. I will follow him. I'll, I'll, I'll fight with him. I'll do, I'll do anything because I know that guy. He cares for me. He believes in me. He, 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 I matter to him. Christians do not obey God because they have to. Christians obey God because they want to. We don't follow Jesus so that we can look good. We follow Jesus because we believe he is good. 
we obey him, we serve him, we sacrifice. Why? Because we know he sacrificed for us. We know that he lays down his life for us. And the deeper that gospel is driven into your heart, it will be hard to show up at 7.30 a.m. to set up some chairs. It will be hard to sign up to volunteer with the kids team. It won't be a burden or strife. The more you remember that message, that he took the biggest pay cut of all time, that he actually was cut, that he was cut off from the land of the living, that he died in your place. Serving others isn't a chore. Serving others is a joy. I want to just bring this to bear just a tiny bit more, though. Just Just the littlest bit more. When we see an abuse of power, what do we cry out for? When you see an abuse of power, when you see a CEO selling out his people so that he can stack up the fat stacks, when we see a tyrant, a totalitarian, what do we cry out for? We cry out for viva revolution, right? We cry out for resignations. I want an investigation. That guy should be fired. People cheer in the streets for their death. Why? Because we crave justice. Whether you believe in God or you don't, you crave justice. That's why you cheer when Bernie Madoff gets caught. That's why you cheer for Bernie Sanders said he's going to go after them. That's why you you long for justice. You want totalitarian regimes to crumble because we want justice. We want death to tyrants. That's what we say. But the Bible has the clarity to tell us this. We all have a tiny tyrant in our heart. And not only are we tiny tyrants, the Bible says we've all commit treason. We've all, we've all abused one another. We've all t- used our, 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 the small power we have. You have power. You have volition. You can lead a life how you want. And you know that just like me, you've trampled on people's rights. You know that you've abused that power to hurt other people. You know that even sometimes when you've tried to do things for good, it was actually just you could get something out of it, just like those CEOs. We all have a tiny tyrant in our heart, but more than that, we've committed treason. The Bible says that each and every one of us, even though we have a perfect ruler who would lay down his life for us, even though we have a perfect God who's the best leader, that we've all committed treason. We said, I don't want to obey you. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to start my own little country. The country's self-governed. Just draw a circle around myself. Do what I want. We're all, we're, all ty- we're all tiny tyrants. We're all traitors. And we cry out for justice for other people. The Bible says that God is a God of justice. That God is a God of justice. But he's such a good God that he's not just a God of justice, so that at the cross, Jesus took our justice so we could have God's grace. That's the gospel. And that's why we want this city to know it, because we know people long for justice. Here's the thing, we all deserve justice. But at the cross, Jesus took our justice so we could have God's grace. Father, I pray that that message would sink down into our ears. We're all little James and Johns. We're all people just looking out for our own self-interest, looking out for numero uno, committing tyranny here and treason there. But Jesus, you came, you laid down your life for us at the cross, at the tree. I thank you for that. And I just pray that if, if people never responded to that message, that message hasn't really sunk in. 
God, you're compassionate. You're compassionate to doubters. If people have questions, if people have objections, you're a God who's patient. You were patient with them. You'll be patient with us. Lord, I pray people would trust in you. And they wouldn't want just a little squirt in their life. Lord, they'd want to be fully immersed, just washing over them your grace. And that because of that grace, Lord, we'd lay down our lives for others. We'd follow you in your example. We'd serve others. The people would join teams. They, they'd sign up for a reason team to say, you know what? I could show up at 730. I do it for a paycheck. I do it for a trophy. I do it, I do it uh, for a grade. Why can't I do it for the, the one who laid down his life for me? Lord, I pray that that happen. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the mission that we're a part of. We thank you that you're not a leader who just gives orders, but you're the one who, who took the order. You, you, you took our place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.